when we have the disease to please, what ends up happening is that the people in our life who we want to be the closest to don't actually know us because we're saying yes when we want to say no. We're not telling them the thing that we don't like. We're filing it away on that huge resentment file cabinet. We remember the thing that happened. And we think, well, if they really loved me, they would not do that. They would know. I don't want to have to tell them. Well, you do have to tell them. In grown-up relationships, you do. And so it really becomes this cycle. But the most devastating part of it is how can anyone ever authentically love you if you never allow them to authentically know you? Welcome to the Glow Podcast. My name is Lisa. So many of us were raised to be the good girl. The highest virtue we are taught is being liked. But when we prioritize other people over ourselves, it can deplete us mentally, emotionally, and physically. How good are you at setting boundaries? Would you like to know how to become better at it? Psychotherapist Terry Cole calls prioritizing others over ourselves the disease to please. She is my guest today on the podcast, and she's the author of Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. We talk about how to navigate what she calls high-functioning codependency in relationships and how to stop overgiving. There are many myths about having boundaries and why we might be afraid or unwilling to set them. We talk about how setting and holding boundaries is the ultimate form of self-care. Terry has graciously offered a special gift for our listeners. The details are in the show notes. There you'll also find a list of GLOW classes that complement our conversation. I hope you enjoy your time with Terry as much as I did. She offers some wonderful guidance for all of us. Terry Cole, welcome to the Glow Podcast. I'm so grateful to spend time with you today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Lisa. I'm so pumped to do it. Awesome. I'd love to begin by congratulating you on the success of your book, Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. I personally feel like this book is a gift to the world. It's one of those books that comes along where I want to gift it to every girlfriend in my life, every every family member. I just think this this topic, this work with boundaries is so important. It impacts almost every aspect of life, um, our physical, mental, emotional well-being, our relationship <laughs> with self and others our work, our creativity, and and more. So we'll, we'll touch on more of those things. But I thought before we dive into learning about the book and your offerings, if we could start with your definition of boundaries and, and how potentially that's evolved um, for you through the years. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that about the book. Please feel free to gift it to all the people you've ever known. <laughs> so I will give you my definition of boundaries so that we're sort of all on the same page, because I think that this is a topic that is readily misunderstood and can be incredibly overwhelming for folks. And there's a lot of myths about what it means to be well-boundaried. So I want you to think of boundaries as your own personal rules of engagement. So these are like the guidelines that you set to let others know what is okay and not okay with you. So you need to know what that is, which means how I define boundaries, our boundaries is knowing your preferences, your desires, 
your limits and your deal breakers and having the ability to communicate them because a lot of times we know it, but we have no idea how to say it, you know? So it's really telling the truth about how you feel and about what you do and don't want in your life. But as you're right, I, I, I like this point. It's one thing to know it, to have the awareness of it, but then to actually voice it. That is confusing for a lot of people. And I also think that we, we have to look at boundaries like this. When none of us know how to do it. This is why I wrote a book about it, because I didn't know how to do it. And I didn't realize that so much of the pain and conflict I was having in my young life, in my 20s, was because I was a total boundary disaster. I didn't know it. I was a people pleaser. I was highly codependent. I was a lover. I thought I was just like Mother Teresa, but that turns out that wasn't exactly what it was. And then when I became, I had a different career before I became a psychotherapist. I was in entertainment. I was an agent negotiating contracts for celebrities and supermodels for a bunch of years before I was like, uh, hey man, there's got to be something more contributing right? Like more valuable. It's not, and I listen, I'm not down on entertainment. I love entertainment. I'm not down on models. I just was like, this literally can't be my dharma. There has got to be some other way that I can add value that feels more meaningful. And I had gotten into therapy myself when I was very young, got into therapy at 19, stopped drinking at 21 and found self-help. And that was the beginning of this, like, wow, the more I know myself, the more I can change something. I just couldn't believe that like therapy was available to me, right? In college, like I, I went to, a, you know, the clinic to go there and how much that changed my life. But I have clients who would come in and, you know, beat themselves up. Like, I'm just weak. How could I be in this situation again? And I'm like, dude, how could you possibly know what no one has ever taught you? And it's not just that no one has taught us it. It's that if you are raised as a woman, you are raised and praised to be a self-abandoning codependent for a fact. So we didn't not get the skills. We got the opposite of the skills. And, and it's looked upon. I mean, think about it. Were you raised to be a good girl? be nice above all other things? This was like the highest virtue you could get to was having others consider you being nice, which would lead to saying yes when you want to say no, overcommitting, overgiving, overdoing for many of my clients and for myself. And then where does that lead? To a place of anger and bitterness and feeling taken advantage of. So first of all, if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know about my boundaries. I don't know if they're good. I don't know if they're bad. I feel like it's me. It's not you. I want you to look at it like a language. You wouldn't feel bad about yourself if you weren't fluent in French just because you felt like you wanted to be. You would know. You needed to learn and you needed a good teacher, a good guide, step-by-step -step process, which is what I created in this book. Before we get into the book, because I'm doing both the, the book and the audio book, I go for walks and listen to yeah. it and then I'll come home and sit with the book. But I just wanted to touch on this concept of being praised for being a, a good girl. And I, I was thinking, you know, for myself and so many girlfriends in my life, this notion of there's chaos in the house. So I'm going to do anything to not rock the boat, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's a protective mechanism, I'm guessing, at that point to feel safe in the world. Yes, because as kids, I mean, we don't need someone to tell us how to avoid pain. 
right? We want to not be rejected by the adults in our life. And so you learn if you're in a situation, like you said, that was chaotic in some way, if you needed to prioritize the adults in your life and their needs and their wants, whether it was you being a straight A student they wanted or whether it was more chaotic where there's addiction or um, alcoholism, a kid, um, you know immediately how to, like adaptively, how to focus on that parent so that you minimize the pain in your life. But what happens is those very adaptive um, psychological functionings in childhood become maladaptive in adulthood. Mm -hmm. So then we're endlessly prioritizing other people above ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with being thoughtful, of course. It's not that. But it's that, in truth, to be healthy, we have to prioritize and know, or I should say know and prioritize, our preferences, desires, limits, and deal breakers. And those really are your boundaries. They're the things about you that make you uniquely you. And when we have the disease to please, what ends up happening is that the people in our life who we want to be the closest to don't actually know us because we're saying yes when we want to say no. We're not telling them the thing that we don't like. We're filing it away on that huge resentment file cabinet. We remember the thing that happened. And we think, well, if they really loved me, they would not do that. They would know. I don't want to have to tell them. Well, you do have to tell them. In grown-up relationships, you do. Mm -hmm. And so it really becomes this cycle. But the most devastating part of it is how can anyone ever authentically love you if you never allow them to authentically know you, you know? I, I want to come back to this piece of shifting. Once you do start shifting from this disease to please, how those that have only known you that way, mm -hmm. then, mm -hmm. and I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit. I know you get to it in the latter part of your book in terms of dealing with how it's a whole relearning for some folks, especially family members. Yep. I think what you're talking about is what happens when we change the boundary dance, especially in well-established relationships. Yes. And you mentioned families, because when you think about it, if we think about it as a dance, right? I do this, then you do that. It's like a dance. Mm -hmm. But our family of origin, are they're like the original dance troupe, right? They're the people we've been dancing with the longest. Right. So that can be really challenging to change those relationships. But what I walk you through in the book and what you'll learn is that A, you're not that fragile. B, your relationships are not that fragile. And if they are, if you shifting something, expressing a preference, a desire, a limit, if that literally is catastrophic to a relationship, then there was way more incorrect about the relationship mm -hmm. than disordered boundaries. Because most people, this is behavioral things that we're changing. And so if there is love there, you're going to change the dance. What the person is really feeling unconsciously is afraid that if you change, perhaps you will no longer need or love them. Mm -hmm. So we all have that fear. It's a very human fear. It's very visceral. It's very primal to not want to be, we don't want to be kicked out of the, the crew, right? We want to be with our people and changing can feel threatening, but it's something that I invite and guide you 
to embrace being a little uncomfortable in the moment for telling the truth about how you feel actually creates much deeper intimacy in your relationship, how good it feels to be seen. I have someone in, in a course right now and she was saying, I know this is small and this this is not important. Of course, everyone says that. I'm like, any anything that you did that was healthier than what you would have done is huge and amazing. So mm-hmm. not small. But she said that her partner was like drumming, like fake drumming on her leg and it was annoying her. And normally she would say something kind of passive aggressive or make a joke about it and move away from them. And instead she said, hey, that's kind of bothering me. Can you please stop? And he was like, sure, babe. Like, no problem. And she said, I cannot tell you. It was like this rush of being seen and feeling loved, even though it sounds like it's not a big thing. And I was like, but it is. Because if you can do it with the faux drumming on your leg, you can eventually do it with the bigger things. So it's knowing that every step Telling your preferences, right? Let's talk about that at least for one sec about preferences. Yeah. We think that, think about how much of the time in your young life or friends that you know or friends you know now are like, you know me, I'm easy breezy, no fuss, no muss. It's all good. But hi, is it? Like, why is that a badge of honor to have no preferences? You know, I'm go with the flow. And here's the thing. Some people are go with the flow, but what I can tell you from being a therapist for almost 25 years is that most of the time, that is a learned safety tactic. We shouldn't get a prize for having no preference. And when you really, the beginning of the book is a deep dive into yourself. And when I teach this in my courses as well, where we do a master list right at the top of your okay and not okay list of every area of your life from the lighting in your office to the way you're communicating with your partner. Like so much of the time when we're raised to prioritize other folks, we don't know. I would say to my therapy clients, well, how do you feel about this? Or what brings you joy? Or what would you like? You don't like that they did that, but what would you want them to do instead? And they're like, I don't even know. I'm like, okay, well, why don't we start with getting that okay and not okay list? Like, let's really expand it as a living, breathing document because there's so much that we can change and do in the name of self-care, according to me, in our own lives. Let's say you have an overhead light in your office that you don't like the light. You can probably get a second hand. If you don't have money, you can get a second hand lamp for $10 somewhere that has not caustic light. Or for $3, you can change the bulb to be soft and something that feels better for you. So instead of just accepting, like, well, I guess that's the way it is. There's so many things that we can do to prioritize our own comfort. And I think that's so important because if you are a people pleaser by nature, we're, we're looking out so much of the time, right? We're checking, we're making sure we've got the temperature of every room that we've ever walked in. We know which person I could go into right now. I could go into a restaurant and I'll say to my husband, the guy in the back left, I think he's kind of violent. So I think we should just get it to go. He's like, um, okay, <laughs> I'm just going to trust your instincts. <laughs> like, I don't want to know that, Yeah. but my antenna 
mm-hmm. is like to Mars, like many of the empaths and the highly sensitive folks who are listening right now. And that can be your superpower or that can be an incredible burden. And it all depends so much of that on how well boundaried you are. I can relate to so much of what you just said. And I'm, as you said, I'm sure many of our listeners can. Yeah, that piece I was just thinking, I'm the type that I'll give you what you need even before you think you might need it sometimes. Yeah. And so I'm definitely working on that. And you speak about this a lot in your book in terms of that knee-jerk reaction to already starting to fix things as the person's explaining their issue, whatever challenge they're working through. I'm already going through resources and things I can send them and what the care package will look like. And I'm already... (laughs) We're underlining stuff in the book. Women who love too much. I'm page 89, Betty. I'm sending it to you. I'm taking a picture right now. Yes. (laughs) But this overgiving and this um, automatic need to fix Mm -hmm. so much of this is related to codependency. Yes. So maybe we should talk I wanna, about that. Yeah, let's segue into codependency and then we'll and then we can go through some of the the highlights in the book, especially some of the things I'm really enjoying. And and, and this is coming from someone that I thought I had done some work on boundaries through the years, and I have been, but it wasn't until I got my hands in, on your work that I realized, oh, I have so much more work to do. <laughs> I have so much more deeper to go with this. But yeah, let's let's go into into codependency and what you call high functioning codependency as well. Yes. Okay. So, so let's just, we'll just hit the definition of codependency according to Terry Cole is being overly invested in the feeling states, the outcomes, the situations, the decisions of the people in our life to the detriment of our own internal peace, or maybe our financial or physical well-being. So I say to the detriment, because listen, Liz, we're all lovers, right? We all love our people. We're all, we want them to be happy and have what they want. But if it's to the detriment of your own internal peace, this is now bordering on codependency. The real truth about codependency is that it is an overt or covert bid for control. Mm -hmm. We don't want our friend marrying that stupid jerk. We don't want our grown children to make the mistakes that we made. We don't want our friend to invest in this thing that we know is a friggin' Ponzi scheme, right? Like your heart can be in the right place, but codependency is when you you don't know what is your side of the street and what is someone else's side of the street. Mm-hmm. So I came up with a new term. I created the term high-functioning codependency because for years, I was codependent and didn't know it because I was so highly capable in my life. I was successful. I was the ultimate get it done person. People all came to me. So my idea of codependency was like, what do you mean? Dependent? What? Everyone's dependent on me, person. I'm the one making all the dough. I'm doing all the things. Like <laughs> I'm not dependent on crap. Like I am, I'm the one. So I attracted very similar, mostly women into my therapy practice over the last two and a half decades. And when I would, I would clearly see codependent patterns in their relationships. And I would say the word codependency, and they would say exactly what I said in my twenties, like, what? You're confused. (laughs) Like, no, I'm not codependent. So I realized there is another brand of codependency because a lot of times we think of the Melody Beatty seminal text, mm-hmm. Codependent No More, which had to do with being involved with a, an addict and you were the enabler and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And that 
still holds up. Her work is amazing. But this is more, a little slightly more nuanced where if you're someone who is very capable, who does get a lot of stuff done, you prob- but you're over-functioning. You're overdoing. You are doing things for other people that they can and should be doing for themselves. You can't stand for someone else to have a problem. You, Like you said, you're immediately in fix-it mode. I have ideas. I know a person at that place. I'm going to send you guys an intro email. Like, I could keep going. I won't. But we know who we're talking about. Where you're not good at delegating, which is also hard. You do. It's incredibly hard for you to ask for help. You're doing it all and doing it all by yourself and then feeling eventually like everything in your life is just checking a frigging box. Mm -hmm. You're like, just one more thing I need to do. I remember years ago when I first started dating my husband and I never really wanted to get married. I was like, yeah, it doesn't sound like a good deal because I've made a pretty good life and every other person I've dated, if you're not bringing something super amazing to this party, like this party is pretty rocking. (laughs) We have to, like, I don't, I don't, I didn't really feel like I needed it. And then when I did meet my husband and he was nothing I ever thought in all the things that I needed, a widower, three teenage kids who were acting out, lived in Elizabeth, New Jersey. What? I was like, who is this person? But he was my person, is my person. And I would say to my mother, you know, he always wants to do, he always wants, he wants to drive from New Jersey to pick me up on the Upper West Side, just to drive back to New Jersey. It makes no sense. I could just get on the train for like 20 minutes. It's so easy. And she was like, Tara. Why are you denying him the pleasure of doing things for you? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) I think that's a tough one for women. I hear that a lot too. How did you work through that uncomfortableness? Started to allow him to do that or? I did. And what actually happened though is my mother said, you know, Tara, if you keep saying no, the offers will stop coming. And you will be doing everything by yourself and for yourself. You will end up like me. I was like, wow, that is some damn good advice, mom. Thank you. Yeah. And I started just letting him do things for me. She's like, he's capable. He's a grown man. He's been raising kids alone. His wife died when the kids were young. She's like, you don't need to micromanage this guy. And you can beat him into submission, but I don't think he's going to be who you want him to be if you do. That's beautiful. That's good sound advice. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Janie Cole. All yeah. right. So, so moving back to high functioning codependency. Yeah. What comes from this is burnout. Yes. We're just exhausted. There's only so much bandwidth that you can possibly be pouring out. And in your 20s and 30s, you can do it. And then life, and then age, and then things start happening where you have to. Con- really like conserve your energy, but it's also, here's the the most painful part of codependency in general. I had one of my siblings who was always had trouble in her life in abusive relationships, addiction stuff. And I remember saying to my therapist in my twenties, I don't know what to do. You know, she's living with this abusive person in the woods with no running water. Like that was the actual no exaggeration situation. I mean, both of them, addicts, whatever. And she's like, you know, there's really like, like it was my problem. I was like, what am I going to do? And I had already tried throwing money and doing lots of different things. And she said, you know, I have a question for you. What makes you think, you know, 
what Carly needs to learn in this life. Mm. And I was like, well, I think we can both agree it. She doesn't have to learn it with like a crackhead living in the woods with no water. And she's like, oh, I definitely can't agree. I have no idea what she needs to learn and how she needs to learn it. And neither do you. But what, let me, do you know what's really going on? And I was like, uh, clearly no. So how about you clue me in? And she said, her dumpster fire of a life is really messing with the peace that you've spent 25 years creating. So you really want your pain to end by fixing. And that really, really changed my mother Teresa mindset, thinking I was so just such a love bug and it was all about that. I was like, oh my God, you're so right. I feel like I can't rest while her life is a mess. And she was like, but here's the thing. You, it's not your job. You don't know. And it's presumptuous, really, to think that you do. And so then I was like, wait, but so I don't have to save her? And she's like, no. And I was so relieved. And she's like, and you can't. You can be supportive, draw boundaries. So anyway, I said to my sister, if you ever want to get out of that situation. I'm here. I'm still your yeah, person. Yeah. Exactly. And six months later, she was like, hello, does that offer still stand? I want to get out. And I was like, yes. She went to school, got sober. Life changed, but it was because it wasn't me centering myself in her crisis. And that was another really painful realization for me. And it has been for many of my clients and people in my courses. Like, think about it. When we are in immediate fix-it mode, what are we doing? We are centering ourselves in that person's crisis. Instead of saying other things you could say is, well, what does your gut say? What do you think you should do? If you did know what to do, what would it be? I have faith you're going to figure it out because you're the only one who can. I'm here. I love you. I'm sorry you're struggling. Um, if you want to brainstorm, we can brainstorm. But it being in this position when you are perpetually in this high-functioning codependent place, you feel responsible. And then when you give advice to people and they don't take it, you're like pissed, right? like, well, if Betty had just divorced that jerk when I told her to, you know what I mean? Like she she wouldn't be going through this now. I don't have sympathy for her. We are not the bosses of the people that we love. And it is a dysfunctional way. And it is the basis of it is disordered boundaries, codependency, just the sheer nature of the way the interaction is, the behavioral interaction is having disordered boundaries. I love this message so much. I think this is important, especially what you learned in that moment with your sister. I think this one is a theme that everyone can relate to in some way. You know, obviously for everyone, it's a different dynamic, but that notion of trying to come in and fix, I'm actually doing a disservice, as you pointed out, and as you um, yeah. learned in that moment, we don't know who you know what lessons there are to learn and you're right how presumptuous of us to think we know what you need we know what will make and in our heads we we sort of do have this vision but but that might not be for their highest good with the journey that they need to go through to experience and whatever your sister had gone through she needed to come through that into the other side of it and i love that she came to you herself that's such an important lesson for both of you in that moment because i'm sure for yes. you what relief of oh this is what it feels like now to honor someone's journey for what it is and path as close as they are to you and as much love you have in your heart for them. 
to honor their path and let them come through it to the other side and say, okay, I'm ready. I need help now. Yes. At least it's also respecting their right to be self-determined, whether they're flailing around or whether they're thriving. Mm -hmm. It is their right to be sovereign, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not the boss of my sister or of my husband mm -hmm. or just of myself. And the way this looks when it comes to boundaries is that as much as I'm not the boss of Vic, my husband, what he does, of course, impacts me because we have a long-term relationship. And so you learn to compromise and talk about things. And, you know, the different, I think it would be, it's helpful to talk about when you're setting boundaries, when you're making a boundary request to someone, when you're saying no, because for so many people just saying no is so hard. You're just on the Insta yes train. And that could be because of unhealthy helping or fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, um, fear of confrontation. We don't want anyone to be mad at us. But I think that if we, if we break down the easiest way to learn how to give yourself the space to say no is to learn to buy time. So everybody listening right now, let's just commit to no immediate agreement to anything that someone is asking you to do, unless it's something that's like for you and you want to do it. But generally, if someone's asking you for something that you're just for five days, you're not saying yes immediately, you're going to say, uh, hey, thanks for thinking of me. It, let's say it's something that sounds fun. I'm going to check my calendar. I'm going to check with my partner, my roommate, whoever, and I'll get back to you by Wednesday or I'll get back to you by Friday. Like start flexing your muscle of realizing you don't owe anyone an instant answer. People can wait, but you're allowed to have space to make a decision. So when we stop the auto yes, now there's a moment to go, do I really want to go to that concert that's outside? You know, let's say that outside, who, even if I like the person, the answer for me is always going to be no, I do not want to, even if I really like the person. So then you can come back and either say, you, if you have other plans, say, hey, you know, we can't make it, but I hope you guys have a great time. Realizing you don't need to write a dissertation about why you're saying no, <laughs> right? You don't need to be like, because this and I tried and uh. Now, the difference between convincing someone that you have the right to say no and providing context, they're completely different things. Convincing is coming from insecurity and fear. Like, I want you to approve of my no. If you're going to become a boundary boss, if you're going to be fluent in this language, you have to realize sometimes you're going to make decisions that people don't like. You know what? It's okay. Everyone's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. They're all going to be okay. Unless you're in an abusive situation with someone super violent, then none of this applies to you. Just have to say that to be safe. So it's okay to say no and to be uncomfortable. Where do we provide context? If I'm saying no to something that my husband would like me to do, I provide context because I love him, because I want him to understand me more deeply. I'm not saying no to punish him or to be mean. I want him to know I'm saying no because I have a presentation the next morning early, so I can't be out late. But I want him to go with our other friends and have a great time. But again, I'm super clear when I am talking to him that I'm not convincing him 
because I don't need my husband's approval to say no to something I am sovereign in my marriage. And I love him and want him to be happy. And all he has to do most of the time is say, I really want to do this thing and I will, I will find a way to do it. But do, do you see the difference between context and convincing? Because it's really important because in the beginning of my going from boundary disaster to eventual boundary boss, I felt like I wanted everyone to, when I started drawing boundaries, I wanted them to be like, good for you mm -hmm. or approve of my boundaries. And the realization when you get fluent in doing it is that if I'm not doing what somebody wants me to do, sometimes they're not going to be happy. And that's okay. <laughs> that's such an important note. And I think we all struggle with that of wanting to be liked. I think that that's true. But also let's get specific about, we, we all want to be liked still. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm a boundary boss and I still want to be liked. Mm -hmm. It's, do I want to be liked more than I want to be behaving within my own integrity? At what cost? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The answer yeah. to that is no. And I think that what a lot of people are surprised to find out when you start drawing boundaries, because we always start small, low priority people, like we build up to it because it is a skill set, right? Mm -hmm. That that you're building throughout this process is that people, a lot of times are like, wow, thank you for telling me that. You know, you, you where you go, I really don't want to do that thing, or I don't like that, or I would really love it. Someone just asked me, how, how do I stop telling people not to buy me gifts? People are like, what do you want for your birthday or for Christmas? And she's like, and I always say nothing. I have everything I want. And she's like, but the truth is I would like to be a good receiver. I'm like, well, then A, stop blocking your good from coming by saying that. You could say, hey, surprise me. You could say, I would love to have an experience with you because that's always my, the gifts that I want are never actual things. They're those things. Um, you could say, look at my gift list on Amazon. I mean, like <laughs> you could guide them actually to your wish list and allowing people to give to you because she's feeling ripped off in her life because she's a good, she loves the pageantry of gift giving, mm -hmm. but then denies herself that joy. And you're really ripping off the people in your life when you don't allow them to ever do for you. Think of how good it makes you feel when you add value to someone else's life. So you got to be, be receiving as well. And that's hard. I right. find that with most of my therapy clients, it's, it's a huge thing, difficulty in allowing and accepting. Yes. Givers, it's over givers and givers have a hard time receiving. That's for sure. On every, any level, like even compliments. My husband complimented me this morning and it took me a moment to just pause and I said, thank you. And, you know, <laughs> yes. You know what my Janie Cole would say about not receiving a compliment? Mm. She said, when someone gives you a compliment, it's like they're handing you a little blue box wrapped. Mm. It's a gift. And when you slough it off or go, no, no, it's like you're taking that gift and throwing it on the ground and stomping on it. Would you ever do that? And of course, I'm like, no, never. And she's like, that's the same thing, though. So when someone says you look beautiful this morning, let's say, and you allow it to come in, like you just said, and say, thank you. 
when I was younger, I'd be like, no, look, I have this thing on my yeah. face. I have a zit. I have a thing. <laughs> I, you know, or they say your, your talk was great. And I'd be like, yeah, until the last five minutes. And then I messed that thing up. Like, stop it. Stop <laughs> fighting for your limitations. Stop pointing out your problems and just so be gracious. But it's a gift, you know? Yeah. Okay, good. So another Mama Cole shout out. That was good. I love that. So I want to get back to the book because I truly am, I'm entering this book journey with you as I would approach a university course. I know some people that might not work for them, but for me personally, I loved going to university because I loved the discipline of it. And so mm -hmm. if I go to it with that mindset, it helps me have that discipline with working through each step and the exercises and then the real world application and then reflecting on the real world application. What did I learn in that moment? And what could I have done better next time? So as I mentioned earlier, I have done a lot of work through the years, especially upon diagnosis of, of Hashimoto's. I wanted to look at every <laughs> aspect, all lifestyle aspects, not just what I'm eating and so on, but also energetically. And so <laughs> one of the things I did was look at boundaries, but it wasn't until that point where I was, and I'm guessing you see this a lot too, I'll let you speak to this, but that there is some health crisis that, that really gets us to stop and look. So we're getting these nudges along the way, maybe little mini health crises, so to speak. Um, uh, but and we can talk more about body wisdom because I love that you get, get into this in your book too. But it wasn't until this slap across the face moment with debilitating symptoms that mm -hmm. then forced me to sit down and look and say, okay, this something has got to change here. So I'll let, I'll let you speak to that because I wonder what in your practice, what, how often you see this? Oh, it's in my practice and in my life. I mean, it was when I was diagnosed actually with thyroid cancer, ironically enough, that we both have thyroid things. And that happens to be the fifth chakra where you're speaking the truth or not speaking the truth in your life. Um, it's like I see it all the time with clients where it's like the universe is like whispering in your ear, tapping you on the shoulder, and you're completely ignoring it and then just throws you down a flight of stairs mm -hmm. because they're like, you, you will stop. I, I will do something that makes you stop because you can't go on like this. And that's how I saw my diagnosis when I was in my early thirties, where even though I had been on this path and in therapy and learning, it was that, that was a super power pivot in my life where it went from, you know, my, my health went from like the size and shape of my ass to like how I'm living, like longevity, like actual health and wanting to live for a long time. And a cancer diagnosis is scary, no matter, no matter what part of your body it, it is of or how curable it is. You know, when you're a cancer virgin, you don't know, it's still, it's, it's a wake up call. And it's sort of similar to what the pandemic has done for many and what I'm seeing it over again, where the universe um, hit a collective pause button for us. And it's like, hey, this could be a really good time for you to change a whole bunch of stuff that might not be working in your life, to look at, to question the status quo. You know, we have these schemas in our, in our unconscious mind of like the way things have to be. All these companies that are like, nobody can work from home and run a business. Oh, look, I guess they can, because they did. Or nobody can do a book tour 
from their yellow chair, like I am right now. But you know what? I did. Mm -hmm. And it was great and successful, even though it wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't the pandemic. So it's a chance to flex our thinking outside the box muscles, but also to really go, hey, is what I'm doing satisfying? How's my relationship? Nothing like being in a small space or any kind of space 24-7 with people that you probably spent two hours a day with prior to that to make you see the dysfunction that was already there, right? But now it's amplified how many people have written into me and how much of the blogs and stuff that I've put out in this past year and a half have been about what do you do? How do you have boundaries in that kind of space? What do you do if your boundaries have been terrible and now you're trapped together with kids for 24 seven, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think we can see this as an opportunity and some kind of diagnosis, like you just said, Lise, a lot of times, and I've shared these stories in the book too, that people, they will end up on my couch because they're literally on their knees. Like, and when you're high functioning, dude, I know, you know, it takes a lot to be brought to your knees because you're just like, I could, it's fine. Like, it's not great, but it's fine. I could keep going. I keep going. I could keep going until something happens where it's like, I literally can't keep going. I can't keep up this pace. I can't keep doing this thing. So I, I'd like anyone listening to know it doesn't have to get to that point, even though it's very common that it does and that you have a right to take a break to rethink, to take an inventory. If you're sitting here listening and you're like, I don't know, how are my boundaries? Maybe they're great and I just don't know. I'll ask you right now to take a resentment inventory. Just bring to mind like three people that you're like, hmm, I'm feeling kind of a little resentful at them because usually that will tell us where boundaries are being crossed, even if the other person may not know it, right? It could be a boundary violation, but you haven't spoken the boundaries so they don't know, um, or you're feeling taken advantage of. But anyone who's like, I don't know where I need boundaries, that's the perfect place to start because I promise you, wherever you've got resentment, most likely a need is going unmet and a boundary is being crossed. That's beautiful. I, I love that notion of let's not wait till it becomes that, you know, fall on your knees. And you do offer in the book one of my favorite parts of I have many favorite parts of the book but the go deeper section this just allows for so much more um an invitation to sort of go deeper and really see what even though like I said I thought I had been doing pretty good and had gotten better in the last 10 years but but once I dove into your book I realized I have a lot more work to do and that it is a life skill. I, I have a feeling for me, and maybe it's not for everyone, and I would love to know your thoughts on this. I think it's going to be an ongoing, um, <laughs> and it'll evolve in different ways, probably in different, with different dynamics with different people. But I feel like this is an ongoing resource guide that I'll continue coming back to, even after I've worked through it, you know, it, yep. it's just going to be one of those things. That's a, well, thank you for saying that. That's exactly was my intention for the book, I want you to think about disordered boundaries and the conflicts that come from disordered boundaries as situations that are avoidable, that distract us from our real work, mm -hmm. from what we're really meant here to do. 
because we do have limited time on earth and we do have limited bandwidth. And it's like a lot of this stuff is unconscious, which I walk you through in the book, but it's like we're lighting these are self-lit fires all over the place. And we're like, why am I burned? Why do I keep getting burned? And it's like realizing where, where you are taking these actions and abandoning yourself or blaming other people or whatever the disorder, however the disorder boundary comes up for the, if people haven't taken the boundary quiz, it's actually really good and mm -hmm. it will help people get a baseline. Just go to boundaryquiz.com. It's totally free. It's just 13 questions, but it's, it's got seven archetypes because boundaries are not just somebody having two malleable boundaries, right? Two loose boundaries. We also have boundaries that are too rigid. And those are people who fall more into the category of being like the ice queen or like the loner mm -hmm. where we have a tendency to pull away rather than tell someone that you have a problem with them. Or are you more likely to sort of cut them out of your life or just ghost them? And that is a rigid boundary there. And we don't just have too, too malleable or too rigid. Most of us are a combination. It depends on the situation. So there is a lot to learn about your own boundary style, right? Your own um, boundary blueprint, I call it, where you know you fill, you answer a zillion questions about your childhood, about what you learned. It's not about blaming your parents or your parental impactors, whoever they may have been. It's about understanding that however you relate to boundaries right now, there's a really good reason why you're doing that. But know that it is learned behavior, which is the best news because it can be unlearned. So back to what you were saying about the back to you, writing a book where you're teaching so it's a workbook within a book because I didn't want to do both. Mm -hmm. I wanted people to really one-stop shop. And then I have all these bonuses that people go to the boundary box, but there's a whole URL for the bonuses that where you can get meditations and everything that you need. Because I wanted it to be for you, the, the mom in Idaho who's like the cocktail waitress who thinks she's completely screwed. She got three kids. The ex is a deadbeat. I wanted her so I also had a whole campaign to get it into libraries mm -hmm. so that she could, if, even if she didn't have 20 bucks to buy a book, mm -hmm. she could borrow it mm -hmm. and still, because this is for everyone. And so I didn't want it to be like, this is elite and then you have to take my course. You don't. Right. You can, if you'd like to, but you don't. The back to you, I wanted so much in each um, section where I'm talking about a yeah. new concept. That's what Lisa's talking about. If you're not familiar with the book, there's a back to you where it immediately is the reader is now applying exactly what you just read. Oh, so where in your life, maybe whether it's, you know, boundary violations, whether it's stuff you learn from your family of origin, like forbidden emotions, like many of us grew up in homes. I did where you weren't allowed to be angry mm -hmm. and that impacts your ability <laughs> to set boundaries and to know how you feel. So anyway, we walk through all of that sort of before we get to the boundary setting and proactive boundary success plans, we really do a deep dive because all of this is predicated on you knowing yourself, loving yourself enough to know yourself. And really, what is, what is the most self-care thing you can do? Have healthy boundaries. <laughs> 
Well, it's so funny. I have so many things. Okay, coming up. So first of all, the discovery of self for sure is is through this whole book, weaved through the whole thing. And as you say, we don't know what we don't know. So once we start to become aware, then we can start to obviously, you know, see these things and work on them. But one of the things that I like to say is take care of yourself because our world needs you. So the notion is of what you said before in time, and that's one of the things I have found in terms of grief with this work is the amount of time and effort and energy I've given to to others or not creating and or holding true to creating and maintaining boundaries. But I realized that I would almost shift that as a create and maintain your boundaries because our world needs you. You know, it's almost right. like that shift of we need you to be able to show up and do good work in the world, your creative work in the world that is unique to you will have more energy to do if we're not, as you said, overwhelmed, undernourished, over, you know, exhausted by crossing all these boundaries. Yes. That are all muddled in different ways. If we can get super clear and then hold them, um, and what a gift, not just to ourselves, but we end up, even though it might not feel like it, we actually end up gifting those around us. And then that ripple effect out into the world. Yes, absolutely. And you also don't waste all the time. It's like when you talk true, when you just tell the truth, mm. it's like we, we spend so much time thinking about every time, if anyone listening or you, Liz, think in your mind, I don't want them to feel, I don't want them to think. I'm going to say, just start backing it up and get on your own side of the street. You know why? Because what they feel and what they think is on their side of the street. And once you become expert on how you feel and what you think, your life will change. And you share that. Like your highest thing in life can't be avoiding conflict. Mm -hmm. Like if you're wanting to do your what you're meant to do here. Yeah. Right. This is disordered boundaries are more of a glass ceiling than anything else mm -hmm. could ever possibly be. Mm -hmm. They restrict us in so many ways that we're probably not even aware of, but will likely be revealed as you work through the concepts in your book. Yes. Because I've already seen it come up. I've yeah. already seen things be revealed. That's what I'm saying to you. Like I have already felt, and I'm not through the whole thing, I've already felt the grief which is mm. good because it's a release, right? So I'm recognizing, yeah. I'm releasing, I'm responding. And then also the um, the liberation piece is already coming in just with the notion of how I can improve and knowing where I can apply, what do I need to, what I need to apply? So that's already coming in. Before we go in, into more of that though, I wanted to touch just on what you were saying in terms of talking true mm -hmm. and the time wasted, because I was just thinking about every time that we don't talk true, and then hold it in what that does to us, not only physically, but then the sort of um, notion of pent up release <laughs> because we haven't, it's going to come out one way or another, right? And I think you you actually speak to this exact thing, whether you're going to talk it out now or later, it's coming. Right. But I always say, because it's true that there's only two things that we can do. We can either talk it out, which is talking true, hopefully, or act it out. Right. So this is not going away. It's not your feelings of resentment or anger 
they're not going away. Mm -hmm. They're just going underground. Mm -hmm. And now it's even more confusing because we're employing unconsciously all these psychological defense mechanisms. To We're displacing our aggression. We're being passive aggressive in our expression of being of our displeasure. Instead of just saying, hey, man, that was not cool. I did not like what you just said. I really didn't. That hurt my feelings. Why are you talking to me like that? Or whatever it would look like to talk true for you. And I give you again, I, and I, there's a whole chapter on just scripts because we need the language. We really do need the language. But it isn't like it goes away. So it's almost like the payment, whether it becomes physical diagnosis, because all of that frustration it, it doesn't just go into the ether. It goes somewhere. And now it's even more confusing to figure out. So mm-hmm. it, the importance of knowing yourself, knowing how you feel. And again, anybody listening, whatever you discover, if you take this journey with the Boundary Boss book, know that you don't have to change anything now or ever this can be a gift for you to learn about yourself. But some people I know are so afraid because they're in relationships that I, they know are not good. And they're like, if I read a book on boundaries, I'm going to have to divorce my person. You're not. What I want to give you is the ability to make a mindful choice, even if it's to stay. We stay and we break up for all different reasons. Maybe you want the comfort if it's if, if it's not a passionate relationship, but but it feels comfortable. And for some folks, that's enough. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. There's no judgment. And I think that it's important to to everything is on your own time and everything is very slow mm-hmm. and small baby steps, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I think it can be threatening to yeah. To change, you know? That's a really good point. Yeah. You don't have to feel like, gosh, if I dive into this book, that means I'm gonna have to face XYZ that really is scary and traumatic. No, like I think to your point, like this is so for, this is such a gift for you. Mm. And, you know, it, it, you weave in self-care, like we talk about self-care, like this is an aspect of self-care, as I said before, and, and self-respect and -hmm. self-discovery, like we spoke about, and then allow it to see what organically comes from it without the pressure, as you were saying of, gosh, now I have to approach this person in this way that I'm not ready. You know, no, I I agree with you. I think, I think that's, that's beautiful. That's the invitation is there. You are such a guide through this at times, a fierce guide, but like a loving guide, allowing folks to become more aware and curious and open to look at what's, what's there. How am I showing up in the exercises that you walk through? I did. And by the way, I did take the, the boundary boss, boss style quiz and mm-hmm. I did it twice, and I think you you'd speak about this where it's you you have a primary, but there's also a, a few yeah. that usually you're kind of teetering. So yeah, yeah. And mine was I'm guessing this is a common one. Pushover and peacekeeper are yep. kind of go hand in hand with the fix it kind of people and people pleaser people. But yep. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to touch on mindfulness and the breath work and the the meditations that you weave in. I think our audience especially will appreciate these aspects. They're weaved in so beautifully and organically in such a helpful way, such a purposeful way. So I wonder if you could touch on that because I think this mindfulness practice is so important in what you were saying before in harnessing that moment where we're about to do that same habitual reaction 
but we we harness that fleeting moment as as sometimes as fleeting as it is and stop mm-hmm. and so we're able to respond from a more conscious way and as you said yep. sometimes it's taking hours or five up to five days to really sit with it so i wonder if you could touch on that and and how you pr- very purposefully intentionally weave in these practices into your book sure um part of why I weave them in. Why they're important to me is because they're important in my life. That about 20 years ago, I was, I'd been looking to learn how to meditate and just typical New Yorker type A, like never, I was like, I know there's got to be some weekend thing that I could do. Just come on people, keep moving, you know, (laughs) and I went to the open center, obviously nothing stuck until I did something with Deepak Chopra and David Simon and David G. Mm -hmm. So the the Chopra center Mm -hmm. and once I got a practice going that was dedicated, that's literally, I think, eight, 19 years ago now, the most profound thing that shifted in my life was I gained about two seconds mm. of response time mm. in every situation that I was in. And that changed my life. No more hitting send on like the angry email. I was like, yeah, maybe not. If I still want to send it tomorrow, I'll send it tomorrow. But I mostly didn't. There was so much more internal expansion, which created the ability for more self-reflection and more mindful choices. So when I became a therapist, all, all of this was happening kind of at the same time. I'd already been a therapist for maybe five years when I started meditating. And I just started saying to my clients, it was like mandatory that they at least try and I do primordial sound meditation, but it could be TM, it could be whatever, whatever it is that was good for them. But then I started doing spontaneous meditations and sessions mm. with people and they were like, can I record it? And that was the beginning of me having a lot of meditation CDs that I became a certified meditation teacher with David G, like this, this whole process. So I knew that this aspect needed to be in the book. Mm. And you don't have to, you know, go to India. Obviously, this crowd knows that, but a lot of other people don't. Mm-hmm. That, like, you know, to sit on a mountain top for four months to become a meditator. That it's just about wanting to do it. Start small, mm-hmm. but this creates much more accelerated, um, impactful transformation for people who do it. And I guide you through doing it. I provide. You know, or, you know, already I voiced them myself, so you have them. Mm-hmm. But the self-reflection space, there's this expansion. So I, I talk about people creating kind of a Zen den in their in their house, apartment, anywhere. Could just be like a, a, a candle, right, right next to your bed, because it's a reminder to tend to your internal sacred space. So just getting into some ritual around some stillness. And silence is so helpful to sort of keep that self-awareness going. Because like you said, when we're changing these things, we need present moment consciousness. We cannot be on autopilot because on autopilot, we're going to do the thing we had been doing. That's right. Yeah. So we've got to be here now, which requires an effort. Mm-hmm. until, you know, and then for me, meditation really supported my ability to be present in my life all the time. That's beautiful. I have found those really helpful so far. So I I appreciate that aspect. I wonder if in the time we have left, I just wanted to touch on 
the over arc of what the book encompasses. Mm -hmm. I was saying this at, at the top before we started that I love the boundary boss bill of rights. The first one, you, ha you have the right to say no or yes to others without feeling guilty. You have the right to make mistakes, course correct, or to change your mind. There are others in there, but I wanted to jump to, you have the right to prioritize your self-care without feeling selfish. And I think this one is so important. And we spoke about reframing self-care into self-respect. For some people, at least for me, reframing it that way helped with the selfish aspect. Like this mm -hmm. is a form of self-respect. And then also knowing that by me taking this time for myself, I'm going to be that, I'm going to be able to show up for my loved ones in a more helpful way, ultimately. Yes. So I love that you integrate that into the into the book and kick it off that way. Because I'm trying to set the stage because I know what people need to do to be successful. And you cannot be, you have got to take care of yourself at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, just a little bit, even if it's lighting a candle and sitting down for five minutes, you're setting the stage and then it'll start to grow from there. And some days, like every day, like getting on a yoga mat, every day is going to feel different. Some days you'll, you'll, it'll feel easier. You'll have more time to let go and really settle into the space. And some days it's going to be a little more fleeting and that's okay. Yes. I always say to my husband, we always talk about like, how, so how was your meditation? Cause we do it together. Don't whatever. And sometimes he'll be like noisy. I'm like busy. And then we <laughs> both go eh. and any moments in stillness and silence are better than none. Even if they're busy, even if they're noisy. Yeah. And it's a practice. Like we said, it's funny. I have a meditation teacher I've had for many years and he's an Ayurvedic doctor and he would go in for the brain scans when they were meditating. And he had one where he went in and the brain scan, he was felt very deep and, and got one result. And then he went in and his mind was very busy, but actually the result was just as good, if not better. Like it's just the practice hmm. of it was, um, yeah, he was able to, he was going deeper, even though he didn't feel that that was happening. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. But like his brain was responding. Yeah. And I always yeah. remember that when I, when I have those, those busy moments that you were just explaining, but <laughs> so the first part of the book connecting to the dots of the past. So as you say, here's where we gather info and we take an inventory. So this is the importance of the basement excavation, the finding the boundary blueprint. Yep. And the, the questions that you ask here, I think really do help excavate and help create more awareness. And it's kind of nice because if there is any resistance to this stage of revisiting the past, the way you gently handhold and guide through, it's all, it's all great. It's all fine. I didn't feel like, oh, I'm reliving traumatic things. It didn't yep. feel that way at all. Do you want to kind of, yeah, like maybe comment just on like, like the, the purpose of the first part of the book? Well, we have to go back to go forward. And trust me, if uh, in 25 years, if there was a way to go forward successfully without going back, I would have already figured it out. There really isn't. Mm -hmm. So it's in some ways, it's going back to the scene of the crime, depending on your childhood. It's going back to where the original injuries might still be activated. So we've got to go down there. Once you know to look in your basement, which is your unconscious mind, it makes life so much easier. Like you start to learn this process of looking at patterns and decoding them for yourself and going, huh, I know what questions to ask myself now. And I give you all of these tools like to identify where you might be having a transference, meaning you're 
behaving now, you're being driven now by an unresolved painful experience from the past that is in some ways similar to what is happening now. When you can start to go, oh, look, huh, I'm, this is how I responded. That's curious. Let me become curious about that instead of damning of ourselves. It's this whole framework of looking at ourselves as sacred human beings who have had experiences that we're not responsible for, like how we were raised. We just, most of, many of us are lucky to just have survived it. Do you know what I mean? That's right. You didn't do anything to make any of those people fail you the way that they did. And we don't focus much on who fell too, because here's the thing. This is where we are now. They did the best or they didn't. I have no idea. What I care about is the reader. What I care about is you. Where are you? How are these experiences still impacting you and giving you the tools to decode them? So the going back to go forward We only go back if something from back is blocking us from going forward, which is what we find out throughout through this process of going into the basement. Um, Because you'd be shocked. Well, you wouldn't because you're reading the book, Liz, but how much of the time clients would be like, I don't understand. There's one story quickly that I'll tell in the book that person's like, this always has an arch enemy at work. Did you get to the story yet? Mm -mm. Always has an arch enemy at work. So now I'm with her through two different jobs where she literally hates someone in her office judging. She's disgusting. She doesn't wash her hands after she leaves the bathroom. Like so, but so much vitriol that I'm like, literally this cannot be about this lady that you work with for six months. There's no way you can have this deep of a feeling. So by the third job where now she is another one, she's like, I don't like this chicken wherever I was like, okay, what is going on? And when I said to her, I said, Hey, how is this familiar to you? And she was like, oh, I'm sure, Terry, I'm sure this happens to everyone. I was like, no. P.S. This does not happen to everyone. What I care about is you. It's happening for you. So what's going on? And I said, listen, let's just answer these questions. Who do these people? You've had three people so far. Three arch enemies at work. Who do they remind you of? Where have you felt like this before? Why or how is this behavioral dynamic familiar to you? The way you're interacting. And she was like, oh my gosh, they're all like my sister. Mm. I was like, okay. So do you know what's happening? It's really not about like Janice and accounting. This is literally about the original arch enemy, Mm -hmm. which was her sister, Diana, who was a bully. And once we uncovered that honored seven-year-old her, you know what she didn't have anymore? Arch enemies at work. And that's how it works. The triggers are starting to dissolve because she's gotten to the core and addressed, yes. and I know you touch on inner child work, which I think is so beautiful too. So I do. staying to that, saying to that seven-year-old self, you're safe and not all of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. And so, so this notion of, and I think part of why it's felt so safe for me to revisit the basement is this detached observer POV going into it with this curiosity. We don't have to relive everything. It's just looking at Mm-mm. to see what's there. The curiosity piece though, Lisa, is so important. It's it's doing it with radical curiosity instead of judgment. Not judgment for them, not judgment for you. Just like, oh hey, mm-hmm. I just observe, you know, Deepak would say that becoming the observer of yourself mm-hmm. without judgment is like this highest level of self-evolution. 
And it really is because all the answers are there. If you're willing to go, wow, why am I flipping out on Janice in the accounting department? Mm -hmm. Like, what is the deal? That is interesting. And instead of making yourself wrong about it, and then we can learn how to go back in the basement and go, okay. And again, these are all tools that you can just pull out of your back pocket and go, who does Janice remind me of? Where have I felt like this before? And even when you get that answer, you go, okay, well, my sister was a bully. Clearly that needs my attention. Maybe I need to write about what I experienced with my sister, get it up and out, because this brings us back to the, you talk it out or you act it out. Right. Yeah. The passive aggressiveness and so on. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Beautiful. So that's the premise and, and purpose, if you will, of the first part of the book, looking back to move in order to move ahead. Yep. And then moving into the second part of the book, if you could highlight the, the full purpose of this section. Well, we're really just getting into the blocks. Like what are the things that happen in life that get in the way of us doing this? And it's, we hit it through case studies. So you can actually look at actual people who've had these experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's so much easier to figure that out um, when you see a story. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, I get that. Um, and also, what are the things that get in our way? The lies we tell ourselves, the excuses we make for other people. I get into high-functioning codependency, talking about all of these different things that we sort of need to handle if we're going to become about your boss, if you want to be fluent in this language. So that's sort of the middle. Mm -hmm. And then we move into towards the last third of the book, we're dealing with boundary destroyers, right? So that's people who the rules don't apply to. And I just felt like it was so important. I had to have one whole chapter about how to deal with highly emotionally manipulative folks. So whether they have a diagnosis of a narcissistic personality disorder or not, it's I wanted the, the reader or the listener to be aware of all of the tricks of the trade, the people who are very manipulative, because if you're an empath, if you're a highly sensitive person, usually you might be attractive to someone who is manipulative. And it's, of course, it's more challenging to create boundaries with someone who is manipulating you emotionally. Mm -hmm. So that that's what that is. And also in the end of the book, we do all kinds of self-care and we do all of the scripts. So now we're getting into the proactive boundary success plans. So how do you actually go, oh, okay, I have to tell my mother I'm not coming home for Christmas and that my family is going on a vacation instead or whatever you need to do. Mm -hmm. I know my mother, let's set this up. When am I going to do it? How am I going to do it? Let me write down the language. I'm going to practice the language. There's a whole process of putting you in the position of actually being successful. And trust me, the more you do this, the more naturally it all comes. But just like becoming fluent in a new language, you wouldn't be like, well, I don't want to practice. That's like weird. You would understand you need to actually say it. And this is the same thing with boundaries because you could have a, an emotional experience, right? When you first do it, then maybe you feel like you're going to cry and you don't want to. Right. But if you say it with a friend or if you practice it in the mirror, you have, you're less likely to be overwhelmed by your own emotions. And I also, in the last third of the book, I'm giving you all of the things to look out for. 
like you're going to start to set boundaries and you're going to really want to take them back. You're going to really want to reverse that boundary. And I'm going to really want you not to. Um, So I have a 48 hour rule. So there's a whole bunch of other tips and strategies to support you in being successful in this journey. But self-care in the end is a really, you know, self-care for the end of the book and beyond Mm -hmm. is what that sort of last chapter is about. I love the the notion too of, because we talk about all the great intentions in the world, we understand it and we maybe even start to create um, some healthy boundaries, but maintaining. Right. So I teach you, what do you do? So we have boundary first timers. Then we have repeat offenders. <laughs> then we have boundary bullies. Right. Then we have boundary destroyers. So just because someone didn't agree to do what you want to do, that does not make them a boundary destroyer, right? Mm -hmm. So we get really clear in that last third of the book Mm -hmm. about who's who. Because even if you think that Betty is an entitled boundary bully, let's just say, Mm -hmm. if you have never told Betty how you feel or made a simple request of Betty to stop whatever bullshit she's doing that's bothering you, then that's on you. So we still put Betty in the first timer category until you've actually either sent an email or had the conversation, then if she continues to do the crap that you're asking her to stop doing, now she goes into the repeat offender category. Mm -hmm. But the way that you handle a first timer, of course, strategically is different than the way you would handle a boundary bully or the way you would approach a boundary destroyer. So it's not that it's so complicated, but People are different and you don't need to use like a sledgehammer when like a pencil eraser will do the trick, right? Right. And in the beginning, it's hard to know the difference, but it helps to put the people in your life sort of in categories. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what I'm saying in terms of you being a guide through the book. You feel like you're holding my hand through the whole thing, which is really nice. And (laughs) let me go back to the go deeper exercises because correct me if I'm wrong, there's there's a go deeper exercise to complement each chapter. Is that right? Yeah. And, and some have more than one. Okay. They're, they're really attached to the, the focal, um, theories, the focal teachings have immediately have something that the reader can do to, um, personalize Mm -hmm. that teaching because sometimes it can feel theoretical where you're like, I think I get it. Mm -hmm. And then the moment you start answering the questions Mm -hmm. when in the back to you, you're like, Oh yeah, now I get it. Right. There's this theme of back to you in true talk at the end of each chapter, which is really helpful. And then the point you're making on the language, I think is super relevant because when you go to speak a new language, when you're practicing it, you're not going to sound this beautiful, you know, <laughs> Italian language, you know, voice isn't going to come out. So it, it, it will take some practice. And I love that. Yes. Word of, even if your voice is cracking, get through saying the words because every time, at least that's been my experience, it get, it does get a little bit easier in the, in the practice of it will just make you that much more confident. So I think that's beautiful that you tie it in with language because it is. This is something really new for a lot of people. Yeah. It's a whole relearning. And, and when we were touching on the mindfulness concepts, what you're really doing, and, and maybe you could speak to this a little bit. We haven't touched on neuroscience, but we're really rewiring the brain at this point. Without a doubt. Every time we respond differently, right? Yes. And, and here's the thing repeated, right? Think about what creates, right? The neural pathways in our brain is repetition, you know, ingrained, repeated thoughts and patterns. Mm -hmm. So the, why it's so important to 
start doing this and be consistent is because it takes mindfulness to create new things because you have to be mindful enough in the moment, as Lisa said before, to not do the old thing, but do the new thing. And there's an expectation that you're going to find yourself, right? There's this concept that I created in the middle of the book, and it's called the in-between. And that as we're growing and changing, we're leaving these defense mechanisms that maybe have worked for us well, even if we're not getting what we want in life, but they've they protected us kind of. Mm-hmm. We haven't yet mastered the new language of boundaries. So you're in the in-between where you're like, crap, I know too much to use that old crap that doesn't work or it works, but not the way I want, like being withdrawn in anger, being passive aggressive. You may still want to do it, but you kind of know too much. You're like, all right, that's dumb. I don't want to do that. But you haven't mastered this yet. For people who are type A, perfectionist, controlling, codependent, it can be really difficult to just be in the unknown. And you've got to allow yourself to be a little uncomfortable. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. But I, I always warn people like you're going to be in the in-between where you're, and you're going to hit resistance mm-hmm. where you're going to be like, you know, maybe I'll pick this book up at the end of the summer. Maybe I'll pick this book up at the end during the vacation in December. Maybe I'll, there's resistance will rear its head in lots of different ways, but be kind to yourself throughout the process. But I also really want to instill that you are so much stronger than you know, Mm -hmm. that you are so not fragile. You're not. Mm -hmm. And that you can do this and your life and your relationships are going to be so much more satisfying. And as Lisa would say, we need you, the real you, the authentic you. That's beautiful. Thank you. Oh, that's a great note to end on. I would say this has been such a beautiful conversation. I'm so excited to share it with our audience because this is, as I mentioned, so important and so relevant. I want to touch on all of your beautiful offerings, just your podcast. What a gift. And your IG lives. I tapped into a few of those beautiful offerings. The one I was listening to recently was on overgiving and your blog posts. So if you could talk a little bit about the beautiful offerings that you have. Okay, well, first, I'm going to talk about the gift I have for your beautiful audience. So it's, um, and I'll give you the link, of course, it's boundaryboss.me forward slash glow, G-L-O. And it's going to be about boundaries and codependency. That's And I think you're going to love it. I think you're going to love it. It's a video and it's a downloadable PDF that you, the listeners, you guys will fill out to really sort of get an assessment of where are you? in in the spectrum of codependency it's helpful when you when you're trying to figure out boundaries <laughs> thank you thank you thank you we'll definitely put this and other helpful links in, in the show notes but that Great. is so kind thank you sure and if you could touch on the boot camp as well i signed up to be on the wait list for the next one excellent um i have a boundary boot camp which um i think it is it is at the wait list right now which is uh it's just terrycole.com forward slash Boundary Bootcamp, I believe. Um, But I have a lot of, I have a crap ton of free stuff, as you know. Mm -hmm. I've got 400, I have a YouTube channel that is just just bursting with free goodness. Um, I mean, I've been doing this, this podcast for six years. 
we get about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, one hundred and twenty thousand downloads a month. So it took a long time to build, but a really nice crew yeah. now. And again, my dharma is to reach all the people who need the thing. So yes, I, I and I also have amazing offerings that cost money. So I have different courses about how to deal with the narcissist. I've got a mother wound course that is new that I think is amazing. If I say so myself, I was so afraid to create it. Mm-hmm. We just went through it the first time and it's very beautiful. I have Real Love Revolution that'll be coming out early in 2022, which is all about how self-love is the only path to any other love. And then we get to the any other love too, but it really is about healthy love. How do we create it? How do we sustain it in our lives? Um, but yeah, hang out with me on Instagram because that's the place that I spend the most time, you know, Cool. I just want to say thank you for doing the work. (laughs) Even back in the day, the story you tell about going to the therapist, taking the train, not getting back till midnight. Even then you were setting for what is happening today. These conversations you're having in the podcast and the offerings in the book and just all of it like this is because you have done the work, have created boundaries, have, have maintained those boundaries And now you're able to have the bandwidth, if you will, and the energy and the space to be creative and put this important work out into the world and to help people. And now we're reaping the benefits of that. And now (laughs) if we can now follow in your example and continue the flow, this is a huge piece of how we make the world a better place. This is a huge piece of celebrating our interconnectedness and, and recognizing our interconnectedness and how we really affect one another. And so Mm -hmm. I, appreciate you so much in your work. And I look forward to continuing my work through the book. And I really would love to report back to you yes, at please. some point how I'm doing with it all. And thank you for the offering, the special glow offering. We'll have that link in the notes. Yes. So. And if people want to get the book, they go to boundarybossbook.com and we can, we'll put that in the show notes too. Cause I have a lot yeah. of, a ton of bonuses, of course. Yes. I'm getting all the bonuses are coming into my inbox. I love it. I love it. So, thank so you fun. so much, Terry. If we were in person, I'd be giving you the biggest bear hug right now. Indeed. <laughs> I'm virtually hugging you right now, Lucy. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you so much. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills. Derek Mills.